0: This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of
1: African-American political thought and action.
2: Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, will a Joe Biden administration be an ally of the Black Lives Matter movement? Two of our guests say most emphatically no. How can the grassroots Black movement for social justice bring real power for Black people? We'll talk with a young scholar who says the movement should follow a path of communalism. And a Black people's movement is making itself felt in Argentina a country that long pretended that it had no black population to speak of. But first, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris pulled off a cliffhanger victory over Donald Trump last week, largely on the strength of black voters. We spoke with Dr. Johnny Williams, a professor of sociology at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. Dr. Williams says Joe Biden is no friend of the Black Lives Matter movement.
0: From my perspective, this is all grounded in whiteness and the effort to preserve whiteness. Do you want to preserve it in terms of white supremacy or white supremacy light? And so this is why they're not speaking about issues. Now, the thing that Biden did was he chose a vice president who is black, Kamala Harris. And I think that really fired up the racist fringe in the Republican base to turn up to go out and actually vote. And that surprised a lot of people that that happened. But it wasn't surprising to me, given that the foundations of the country itself is grounded in civil colonialism and kidnapping of African people and and whiteness itself and white supremacy. So the country is firmly anti-black. And so the white people are trying to preserve, that is, everyday white people ain't just talking about Trump. They think Trump can deliver this. They think also that Biden. So you got two separate camps. You got the liberal white people, the do good or feel good kind. You got the conservative white people who said, I'm all in it for me, narcissistic and so forth. And, And the same thing goes on the other side. They're narcissistic, too. They're liberals and so forth. But they're trying to be a little bit more kinder and gentler killing of you, of black people and indigenous people and so forth, right, by putting out these candidates who basically have no agenda but to preserve whiteness and the advantages that go along with that and that's on the downturn because the economy's in a drink from the pandemic but this is going on now what did this start though this started at the inception of the country itself with the constitution the constitutional united states is a business document it's a document of commerce the, the white guys who created it were interested in making money that's why they rebelled against king george in england and started a revolution against england to form the united states So this is really about money. It's really about money, and it's about race, and who gets the money and the wealth, and who doesn't get the money and the wealth. And black people traditionally don't ever get the money. We're the ones who are actually being exploited by this Constitution, which everybody reveres, which makes no sense to me, because 250-something-year-old document isn't relevant for today. We need a new Constitution, just like the Chileans did a new Constitution from the Pinochet era, we need a new constitution also.
3: Yes, but we do know that half of the American polity would come up with ideas for that new constitution that we wouldn't like very much.
0: Yeah, exactly, right? This is definitely true. So if we did decide to redesign a constitution, as of this moment, it would still not be in the interest of everyday people and people who have been oppressed in the United States or uh, genocided and continue to be genocided in the United States. What can we do, except to, from the ashes of this empire, build a new society? Hopefully by that time we will have people who are ready to design a constitution that's more interested in people than in profit. Because right now the department of this due justice Barrett signals that these guys are doubling down on trying to be business as usual to exploit people for profit around the world and at home. So they're not going to go into the night quietly, they're going to resist tooth and nail and probably very violently. And they're going to take as many people with them as they possibly can before they let go. But from that rubble, a new society is possible, I think.
3: It's quite easy to see that the Democrats are at least as warmongering a party at this stage in the game as the Republicans.
0: Yes. And the fact is that Trump at least didn't get us into war during his four years. That's the only saving grace that I guess he can offer. But he did other destructive things that killed people left and right, and also killing the Iranian general with that missile. But the fact is is that I know that if Biden comes in, I'm sure we'll probably be in some war. Because of the military-industrial-academic complex, which depends on war for profit, And this is what the country has to produce and offer the world is destruction. We're designed to do that.
3: Yes, and war and peace was not even part of the debate.
0: Exactly. None of that stuff was brought up, as you said earlier, because there is no difference between Trump, the white supremacist, and Biden, the white supremacist's like. I mean, it's basically, they're very similar. They really have nothing to offer the citizens of the United States, the everyday citizens of the United States, itself for more war, more destruction, more austerity, more death. This is what the United States is. It is a giant oppressive machine, and it will not stop until we end it.
3: I think it was clear from the Bernie versus the rest of the Democrats debates that the Democratic Party, as well as, of course, the Republicans, are intent on no deviation from their actual policy, which is the corporate policy of never-ending war and never-ending austerity, austerity meaning a never-ending race to the bottom in terms of wages and such.
0: Yeah, I believe that's true. And the signal for that is if you look at what Biden has been saying, if he wins this election, is that he's going to incorporate these Republicans, these moderate Republicans into the party who have voted from the Republican Party. So you will have these warmongering moderate Republicans in the Democratic Party and powerful positions in the cabinet. So he's signaling now that he's going to continue domestically as well as internationally what they've been doing, this austerity thing, the destruction of it all. So they just don't care. I mean, even when people are resisting. So they built this tremendous apparatus, this prison industrial complex uh, system, policing and so forth to keep people in check with, with new policing techniques. And we alluded to earlier about how Biden is also interested in giving the police even more funding and that the Black Caucus voted for militarizing the police, 80% of them did, and funding the police at these high rates and so forth. So they have that there because they know they're going to continue down the road of austerity. And so the death and destruction that is induced by that austerity will continue to reign and people will get mad. And at some point, people will stop looking for a scapegoat like Black people, at least it's my hope they will. That is, white people will stop looking at us and saying, oh, black folks are our problem and bind into the xenophobia about immigrants and stuff like that and realize that it's the very people who are trying to incite them to go against those other groups so they can divide and conquer. So they, we won't focus on them, right, for creating this misery through austerity. That's the key, right? But they got this apparatus built up in case that doesn't go. What they're doing doesn't work out. They'll put everybody in jail or shoot us or whatever just to maintain that sense of power and exploitation and extraction of wealth from other people and lands.
3: Many of us have long said that the only way you can peel off a portion of those white voters who always vote their race is by giving them a choice between voting their race and voting for a program that might save their ailing mother and save their family from destitution. But the Democrats don't offer such a choice, and the default is for those white people to vote their race.
0: Exactly. And even when that whiteness, that, that idea of white doesn't offer them anything itself a psychological benefit, they will vote with the hope that the idea that they are white has some value to the powerful people who are inducing the pain that they're suffering, right? That they will save them first before they save black folks or indigenous or Latinos or Asian folk. That whiteness gives them some kind of carte blanche or some kind of out with these people who are also white. But the whole fact of, if you look historically at this, is that whiteness was invented to convince them, these everyday white people, you know, the poor folk and so forth, that they should side with the money people, right, in order to, as a way to divide and conquer. You can see that during the Civil War era, but we can all see that before that, too. There was a book about the sociology of the South. It was the first sociology book ever written in the United States. And in that book, it offered people who did not own property, that is, enslaved people, whiteness. And W. B. Du Bois talks about that a little bit with the wages of whiteness, Right. But that's where that stuff comes from, and these people are believing in that, and so they buy into it. So as I said, I was hoping that white people would run away. I thought Donald Trump was terrible enough for white people to run away from whiteness, but actually they ran to it, which tells me that we are in serious, serious trouble in this country.
3: But, Doctor, Mm -hmm. they ran to it in even larger numbers than in 2016 in the absence of any pledge by Democrats of Medicare for all, which most of the deplorables also want, or Mm -hmm. any of the other supermajority issues that Biden has rejected that Sanders put forward.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, they don't want to go that way, right? But Trump doesn't want to go that way. The Republicans don't want to go that way either. These two parties are playing with each other, playing off each other, and so forth. So Biden, if the Republicans hold on to the Senate, it appears they will, he would use that and say, I can't get things done for you guys. But the fact is, is that they don't want to offer that anyway, because they ain't interested in those people. I mean, they're interested in making profit off of their illnesses that they suffer and so forth. They don't want to give them anything like it. They're interested in making the money, no matter how much it hurts everyday people, right? So no, Democrats are not going to offer any program. That's not what they're designed to do. And the Republicans are not going to offer any program because they don't care either. They just want to appeal to the whiteness stuff in a very overt way to get people to come along. There's no doubt about that. Whiteness is so hegemonic. It's so appealing that you get You get black people, right, who buy into, like these black politicians, they buy into the whiteness themselves. I mean, their whole standard for being is to become white. They they want whiteness, right? And whiteness is about the money. And then whiteness, for them, in some sense, is this distorted idea of being human, right? And so they don't want to be black. They want to be seen as white. But you can't be white when... The definition of white is not to be black. It's just an impossible task to do, but it doesn't mean that they don't try So you get people like Clarence Thomas. You get people like Barack Obama, right? You know, Michelle Obama. I mean, those people will do the bidding of racial capitalism in order to get some crumbs from it and and some semblance of actually being human, when the fact is, is that they're actually escaping their humanity by embracing that stuff.
2: That was Dr. Johnny Williams speaking from Hartford, Connecticut. Justin Lang is a doctoral candidate in Africana Studies at Brown University and author of a scholarly article on former President Barack Obama's unsuccessful attempt to quell the movement to abolish prisons and the police. Lang predicts that a Joe Biden administration will also try to co-opt and confuse the black movement.
4: The Democratic Party has use the language of law and order just as much as the Republican Party has tried to crack down and has rhetorically cracked down against any type of quote-unquote violent revolt anyway. And so I'm expecting us to see the same type of tactics. And I think as far as folks that are consistently engaged in this kind of work are aware of that, I think folks who aren't consistently engaged in this type of work, Biden can present itself as a way of making things a bit professional. Even in a recent speech that President Obama gave, he said one benefit of having Joe Biden in the office, you don't have to think about him every day. And I think that's exactly the point of trying to, again, maintain the same state of policing and just make it seem a bit less repressive on the surface. In the
3: wake of the rebellion in Baltimore back in 2015, we saw that federal prosecutors moved in with massive indictments, sending some folks to jail for a very long time. That was under Obama. We saw the same kind of federal response under Trump to Black Lives Matter demonstrators. So where is the difference in terms of the hammer that comes down on protest?
4: Yes, I've been following a few recent projects. The Associated Press and The Intercept have put out a few different articles around this recent federal crackdown and these trumped-up charges of protesters, especially from that first week, but also throughout the entire summer. There was a quote that there have been almost as many federal anti-riot charges this summer as in the past 30 years. So we are seeing a particular type of crackdown and a particular type of escalation of charges where federal prosecutors are, in a way, exploiting ideas of, like, making charges interstate based off of loose readings of the law. For example, there is a man named Shamar Betts who's currently held pretrial without bail based in Illinois, and he posted a flyer related to a set of actions in Champaign, Illinois, and they're holding him on federal charges because of the Internet being, quote, a space of interstate commerce. And so that's what we're seeing right now. But again, as you're pointing to, this isn't particularly uniquely a Trump phenomenon. This isn't particularly a uniquely right-wing phenomenon. And this has happened through the Obama administration. And again, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are using the same language as Trump and in many ways are trying to position themselves as desiring to maintain order in an even more repressive fashion. So I don't see any difference between the two parties on this front. And I think we'll continue to see the same thing in terms of how protesters are being responded to. So I think this is a particular way of, again, refusing any distinction between the two parties on this front and also thinking about a way of bringing attention to political prisoners. Because these protesters in this context are political prisoners at the same time as different movements have been bringing heightened attention back to long-term political prisoners. For example, like Jalil Little Muta King and others. So I think this is a point where folks can rally around in terms of resisting the state and how they're incarcerating people engaged in these form of actions right now.
3: If the next president is Joe Biden with his Black vice president, there will be lots of sentiment in the Black community to give them a honeymoon, to give them time, to put a moratorium on protest. Do you think that the activist movement will agree with those kinds of conditions? Yeah, I think there's definitely
4: multiple strands of political activity at play. Different Black organizers that have been doing work around the election while also doing work around policing and building power outside of state institutions that have you know, clearly stated that we are going to continue this work no matter who is in office. I think there's a lot of folks who are thinking about Biden potentially creating a easier ground to organize against, which I think we'll just have to see how that plays out. No real difference in activity and treatment of Black folks under Democrat and Republican national regimes. And then we see states who are like primarily blue in terms of votes, very democratic places where, you know, police violence is happening, where there's already democratic leadership in terms of at the local level. So I think it's about continually to make those connections. People are seeing in this process how Biden came to be the nominee versus Bernie Sanders, for example. I think a lot of people are losing faith in the Democratic Party as well. And so I think it's just going to have to draw on that continued like disillusionment with the party, to keep agitating the folks that might see a sigh of relief in this moment. Along with abolition as a language that a lot of people have taken up, I think it's been fascinating to see mutual aid as a language that people have taken up and a practice that people have taken up. And in relationship to abolition in terms of how folks are expanding their ideas of like how folks we can take care of each other, particularly in response to the COVID-19 pandemic, but also at all of these different actions. And I think in the midst of these actions that people are taking, we're starting to see people try to practice different types of ways of organizing themselves in their community. So I think that's been very interesting in this moment. And I think also one of the strands of this movement I've been particularly interested in is Black anarchists. I think Black anarchist sentiment has grown a lot, and a lot of people are increasingly linking a, a disillusionment with these two parties with taking up different types of anarchistic practice, whether it be like mutual aid or the types of revolt folks are taking up. And I think as we've seen the particular types of critiques of anarchism coming from both parties, from I think that'll be another particularly interesting point of folks to continue to build on is how to connect the mutual aid practices folks are doing, connect the forms of resistance to these radical politics that give folks the ability to continue building outside of state structures. So again, you know, when we run into the problem, as we talked about earlier, of trying to demand abolition and defunding from city council, how are we seeing folks starting to build it on their own as they run into those difficulties? While we have to keep, you know, abolition from being co-opted, also keeping practices like men's mutual aid from being co-opted, because we have seen again, another celebrity politician, AOT, recently tried to position her, some type of mutual aid thing that she was doing in relationship to the history of the Black Panther Party, when we know that she is not related to any type of politics that the Black Panther Party is doing. And so making sure that as we take up these different practices that connected to the politics of like trying to build dual power and trying to build community infrastructure for folks to both survive and continue the, the fight.
2: That was Justin Lang. Speaking from Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, the Black Lives Matter movement has spawned a number of political currents during its brief history. Shea Akil McLean espouses a politics of communalism. McLean is a doctoral candidate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He wrote an article for Black Agenda Report on Black Health. We asked McLean to explain what he means by communalism.
5: My understanding of communalism extends from, I would say, Kwame Nkrumah's understanding of it, which is, he, referred, he really referred to defining socialism as communalism practice in the modern present form. And really, it means community practices. So that means that we ultimately are practicing an ethic of care. We take care of each other and we center our daily lives around sustaining networks and institutions of care. But unfortunately, we live in a society that tells us that those things are not possible or feasible when human history says the exact opposite. And I firmly believe that communalism is something that people of African descent, we know what it is. We've done it every night. It's the only way our people have survived around the globe for the last at least approximate six, 700 years given the context of the quote-unquote rising of the modern state the only way that we have been able to survive is by practicing different forms of care that are way beyond what we see as different forms of like european ideals around the home structure the nuclear familial unit like we don't generally practice things like that we're used to having whole communities where people work together, blocks within neighborhoods where people all know each other and know one another across generations and make sure that people eat, make sure people get the medical care that they need. So I I firmly believe that communalism at the most basic level is about us focusing on taking care of each other really as a, a basic commitment to one another.
3: Well, that sounds like a kind of self-help, but does self-help have a vision
5: for the future, for the whole society? And that's one of the things I think is, is is important because we have to have that understanding of what will we do in the interim and what do we want to get in the long run, right? And I firmly believe that the work that has to be done in regards to practicing communalism, is, in addition to that, is, of course, political education, in a particular form of reimagining what it is exactly that we do want. It may have been Cabral, who made the statement that we're not going to defeat imperialism by throwing insults at it. <laughs> There's a lot of work that has to go into actually having a conversation about what kind of world we want to live in. And I think that that kind of work is actually connected to communalism, but in more of an internationalist perspective. That then expands the conversation out into what kind of a world do we want to have beyond what we have seen with respect to imperialism and colonialism that requires us moving forward to kind of like articulating understanding our current situation as well as our people's history with regards to like how is that situated as part of the colonial system because that's one of the things i think is really interesting about some of the more popular political narratives about the conditions that people of african descent in the united states deal with, and even beyond just the U.S. as the primary focus of the the diaspora, a lot of the conversation about colonialism being central to the situation has kind of fallen back for a number of, um, quote, predominant groups. And it's really interesting to see, especially given the context of some of the same theories that people espouse to and utilize to to make sense of what Black people experience. Because a lot of the words and the theoretical frameworks they're utilizing, they come from Pan-Africanists like Du Bois and Kwame Ture and Charles Hamilton. (laughs) And with some of that understanding of the colonial situation has been lost for us. And I think that moving towards a conversation to where we go like, well, who is involved, who is part of the colonial situation? Who are our comrades in the struggle? Other colonized peoples, who, do we, who should we be working with? That's the kind of work we need to start moving towards. Communalism is about sustaining at the a bare minimum, right? The basic needs. But we need more than that. <laughs> but that kind of analysis
3: doesn't appear to be going on in any great detail.
5: Unfortunately, no. Um, I I have yet to see that. In most cases, I've seen that analysis in small spurts in different places. I've seen it predominantly in Black, queer, and trans organizations and community networks and spaces. There's a number of different places I've seen different people doing that kind of work or at least engaging in that kind of analysis in different abolitionist activist circles. The people who have been doing it ultimately for for a long period of time, they're still doing that work to some relative extent at different scales across the United States. But in a more connected or collective sense, we are not necessarily seeing that kind of analysis. More people are way more concerned with responding to contemporary issues within the framework of what the state has offered us as options, quote unquote. You write that the way that people treat each
3: other as biological consequences. We're now in the midst of a global health emergency and a global economic depression. How does communalism come into play under these
5: circumstances? I think that communalism come into play in a very simple yet profound way. Well, I think the thing that that question actually reminds me of is a speech that Kwame Ture gave when he was talking about the history of people of African descent, particularly once our people were kidnapped and brought to the Americas. One of our first or primary forms of political organizations, I believe it was first the the Free African Society and then it was the Episcopal, the the Methodist Church. Those were some of the first formal institutions that we had to organize ourselves. And at, at the core of that, and that puts them at the political message regarding combating the transoceanic slave trade and chattel enslavement, period. That requires that we articulate not only who we are, but what it is that is our right and what is necessary for us to take care of ourselves and as well as build a world that we want to live in. Nonetheless, given the context of what we're dealing with contemporarily with the pandemic, the global depression, people, unfortunately, are not catching on to the fact that ultimately a policy is about creating a general rule for how a particular community or group of individuals is likely to be treated with well, access to resources that they have or they don't have what they're allowed to do what they aren't allowed to do but we generally don't think of policies in that framework or sense and a lot of that has to do of course with a series of different forms of political speaking language that are used to isolate certain people from the conversation in the first place. At the end of the day, and this is one of the things I try to explain to people, when we think about how racism works and racialization operates, when someone looks at another human being and they assess what quote unquote racial group they are in, and they make it, and what that they may also making an assessment about the gender, sexuality, class, and all the information that they end up concluding is about whether or not they can mistreat that person what they can get out of them, what they can have them do or not have them do. It's about whether or not people are denied basic freedoms and autonomy. And ultimately, at the most basic level, that's what our people have been fighting over. And it goes all the way up, climbing at a series of different institutional structural scales. And I think until we start having a larger conversation about the fact that all of this has to do with what we are doing with one another every day, instead of just some off, so things are happening in some offices and other spaces. It's, being, it's more complicated than that. So it has to do with, like, are, what are you doing on a consistent basis? If you were saying that black women should be protected, what black women in your life are you making sure have food on the table, kids are taken care of, able to take a break potentially from having to wash their kids or, or, or do a particular kind of labor? Are we actually working with and for one another? And I think that's really what that taps into. It kind of like, it goes back to that larger conversation about communalism, because ultimately this is about how we build, build, create, and sustain relationships with one another, and whether or not those relationships are actually fulfilling and edifying.
3: Yes, every activist should have a vision of the kind of society they'd be working towards. But you're saying you have to act out your political ethos every day.
5: Yes. And that's something that I say that in many ways, I've been very, very blessed because when I was in undergrad, the later years of my undergrad career, I had the luxury of being beginning to be trained by my godfather, who was a member of the All African People Revolutionary Party in Buffalo, New York, when it was still active. and. He was really adamant about that. But none of this means anything if you aren't doing it. It's very important. And it's something that he kind of like constantly nailed in and was making sure he pointed out, like, what are you doing to make pan-Africanism an accomplishable objective every day? Are you doing something that helps bring pan-Africanism closer to us and to our community on a consistent basis? Because if you are, not then we're not going to get there. It will never materialize. And I think that that's something that's really, really important for us to take into consideration. And, it, like, people talk about how much they love Fred Hampton, Well, he told us about the importance of practice. they not theory without practice. It doesn't mean anything if you don't actually do it. And I think that that's something that's really, really essential of a component to also analyzing, like, what state is our communities in, or our society? And we start thinking about, well, what does a word mean? And when somebody says something does their word actually mean anything? Does it materialize? Because that tells us a lot about whether or not they actually believe in that said principle that they're claiming.
3: You write that you have very little interest in reform, inclusion, and equality. You know you have to explain that one.
5: (laughs) Yes, yes. My reasoning for that is just thinking about, in the most basic sense, well, what do any of those words mean? I don't really believe that we have anything that, we really don't have many systems that need reform. We, most of what we, we've seen, we're dealing with in the contemporary or modern setting, it requires abolition. It's got to go. We need something different. So I would say that much with regards to reform, because if anything, reform is just con- the constant redress or like, it's just putting new clothes on the situation and calling it some form of change or advancement. And that is not always necessarily the case. Ultimately, if you reform something, the outcome of that, that system has not changed. You also
3: write that access to resources and opportunities is something our people need, but we must consider whether or not that access is controlled by the masses or by the settler state. And that reminds me of Michelle Obama. She said that Black people need to put food resources in these food deserts. She said the solution is more Walmarts. (laughs) There's a series of reasons
5: why I disagree with her on a consistent basis. The solution is most definitely, of course, not more corporations who underpay their workers and displace the responsibility for providing living wages to set employees onto the state so that those workers then end up having to use different forms of quote-unquote State welfare in order for them to survive, the solution, of course, is definitely not more Walmarts because that's not food sovereignty that's not sovereignty at all. That will be reform.
2: <laughs>
5: that's an excellent example of reform, what Michelle Obama suggested, because we're talking about trying to address issues with respect to food deserts or what is better articulated as food apartheid, then we have to start having a very realistic conversation ultimately about land, because when it comes to whether or not we are able to grow food where we live, we all know that in the United States, that's always what, it's a zoning issue. There are a number of different organizations that have done work to try to grow food and make things affordable for people in different neighborhoods, and usually the first people they deal with and have to come up against is the local municipalities, and it's setting it up so, well... You can't grow any food in this area because this belongs to the city or this belongs to the state, or you're not allowed to do this with your front lawn. So ultimately the conversation we need to be having, and in my opinion, I always tell people that's I really don't believe in. First of all, asking white people for anything, because I'm not going to ask this one, not when they stole everything. Two, they stole it. So why are we asking them? If anything, we should be working with local indigenous people, with regards to finding different ways to move towards having functioning food systems that can provide resources to people at a series of different local scales. There will never be a large corporation that exploits people, ever. That will never be a solution. Walmart and the Walton, I'm not going to say they Negro. They never were interested in it, and they will never do that.
3: And this relates directly to the term sovereignty, which you use a lot
5: Yes, and really, ultimately, it's a larger conversation about power, and not just simply, not just simply power. It's a larger conversation about well, the state, because generally, when we think about the sovereign, we're thinking about the authority of the state to govern itself or to govern quote unquote another state. But ultimately, this is about authority and power, and where that authority and power is located. If it is not located in the masses, amongst the masses. We are going to have a problem. And that's the reason why the idea of the, the reform that we can just shift, uh, well, you know, well, the state, well, we don't need the state deal. We just need more Walmarts to come in. This private corporation will solve this problem. You're moving the power and the authority to another group that is not the masses. You're just replicating the problem over and over again. And I think that's one of the things that ultimately we have to start having larger conversations about. When it comes to discussions about who has the power and then the authority to have conversations about how things will be governed. Our resources will be distributed. It has to be within the hands of the people.
2: That was Shea Akil McLean at the University of Illinois. The South American nation of Argentina, like the United States, was founded on the dead bodies of native people and the labor of enslaved blacks. But for centuries, Argentinians have pretended that its black population has died off. Erica Edwards has written a book, that explains how black Argentinians are resisting being written out of history. It's titled, Hiding in Plain Sight, Black Women, the Law, and the Making of a White Argentine Public.
1: Argentina prides itself in being really a country of immigrants, and to be more specific, European immigrants that date back to the late 19th century. Through early 20th century was the first massive migration of European immigrants. And then again, after World War II, we saw another large mass of European migration also then came during the 1940s and 1950s, roughly at the end of World War II. So this is a country in which many people will talk about their grandparents coming over and how excited they were to be a part of this Argentina, but there's always a connection to Europe. And what that ultimately is letting us know is that there was larger state factors at play. During the late 19th century, there were the government officials who looked to modernize the Argentine landscape, and that also included peoples. And looked around, these leaders, such as Domingo Sarmiento, and he specifically said to himself, he even actually wrote a book called Civilization and Barbary, and said Blacks, Indians are ultimately regressions. And if we want to be a more modern nation, we need to look to the models at hand, which at the time was the U.S., and of course, Northern European nations. And so he eventually becomes president, and he, along with other intellectuals, actually write in their first constitution, give a spot for immigration, acknowledging that in order to govern, they must populate. And so it was a call, and Argentina was very much rich in so many resources, and the majority being, of course, Italians and Spaniards, which is not exactly what they wanted, but in many ways... Sarmiento lamented over the fact that it became too immigrant-like and not Argentine enough, but still, the damage was done. And so today, in Argentina, there is a saying that an Argentine is a person who is Italian, who speaks Spanish, but wants to be British. Everything outside. And of course, in doing so, negates completely the Black history and Black presence that's still there, as well as the Indigenous bodies that were there and are still there today.
3: Yes, of course, the Blacks and the Indigenous are still there. And you, of course, did a study of Black Argentinians with a focus on women.
1: Correct. And what I found by focusing on her was there was another way, or an avenue upon which to look at how black women played a pivotal role in the creation and the construction of racial identities? So at this point, I, as well as many scholars, agree that race is a social construct that has very real consequences. And so when we look at, again, going back in history, when I started roughly about the 18th century when I found the census data, for what was then known as the Rio de la Plata, roughly 30% of the population were black, okay? Either noted as being negro or mulatto, free or enslaved. 30% versus 2010, the most recent census, they're doing one again this year, in which you see less than a percentage are now considered to be of African descent. And so I wanted to look at her role in it because I found that oftentimes she was always there. And that's why I titled even my book Hidden in Plain Sight, because she was always hidden in plain sight as ultimately she played a very important role in the household. The way she loved, the way she labored, the way she lived all dealt with how she strategically found ways and in many ways, collective ways, to make her life better and or that for her children. And in doing so, she saw what choices she had. And in many ways, it was to seek levels of emulation to become either a Spanish woman or, at times, an Indian woman. And in doing so, it was difficult at times for me to say, wow, I can't believe she would do something like that. But then i had to remind myself this was the time frame that she was living in and as i still see today black moon will do what it takes to take care of her and her own and that's what i kept seeing and so by watching how some of them successfully were able to make that transition that's when i found that she wasn't a victim but rather she was very strategic and how she maneuvered these legal and social levels of discrimination to seek out a better life. And through that process, I noted not only her as an individual, but also from the state level. So looking at government officials, ecclesiastical officials in the city of Cordoba, they too were also at play in terms of institutionalizing whitening. And so we almost see a parallel march towards whitening happening. And that would then lead to later on, as I mentioned, later on in the nineteenth century, then this final push with European immigration. So what we're seeing is there is an initial whitening process happening. Again, I want to stress, for her, it's strategic, it's survival, and it's how she makes her, her son and her daughters have a better life, seeking that level of freedom, privilege, and status. For those that are state actors, it is to create a society that is more civil, as they would argue, moral, as they would argue, obedient, as they would argue, in order to deal with their vast, large community of color. And together they would you kind of can see as I have noted because they look at it for about seventy years that there is this movement then towards whitening.
3: Yes, you're describing people who are adjusting to in some kind of way this national Argentinian project of black erasure. But at what point Does it stop? And we see Black people expressing their own selves and not trying to hide the Black part
1: of their identity. The great news is that it has stopped and it has really now become a reversal roughly within the last 30 years. Since the 1980s, we start to see a shift, but it's really within the last 20 years that we have now seen these Descendants of slaves come forward, in many ways, out of hiding, proclaiming their pride in being Black. And it is now an exciting moment as I continue to go back to Argentina to see the Black activism really taking hold. The fact that there was even a question in 2010 on the census was because of Black activism and scholars. And they made sure that they start to be counted, and they are going to continue to do that. Another thing that has happened is now we have more Blacks, African descendants that are educated, and so they are now lawyers. They recently created OAFRO, which is an organization specifically that is geared towards providing legal aid to African descendants. Specifically those that have recently immigrated from Africa, there's actually a community from Senegal that have really suffered under the pandemic, and they are really trying to help them, many of them being undocumented, so they are not able to get government assistance. And for many of them, their livelihood was being a street vendor, which you can imagine in this pandemic is just not possible. And so we're seeing that. Black activism is also then coming forward and legal aid as well as being counted. And finally, one of the other pushes that have happened is that within the last 10 years, there is now finally a day created called uh, Day of Afro-Argentine Culture. And this day is celebrated on the 8th of November of every year. And it's being pushed more and more every year in about five years, I would say, that it's been created, 2013 to be exact, so seven years, in which now they make that day really is the full week, a week to celebrate Black history and make it visible. The eighth is important because that is a day that commemorates the death of Argentine hero named Maria Remedios de Vanche. and she had fought in the wars of independence, shot six times, was able to make it back to her home, and then, because of the white generals, imagine that, that advocated for her, she was able to get a pension. She is today known as, this is a black woman, by the way, a mother, the black mother of a white nation. So you see in various facets, whether it be cultural legal or even just accounting and making sure they're visible on government official census data. But yes, there is being a push specifically during this generation. And that's what makes it very exciting as we move forward.
3: Well, you know, we have experience in this country with white folks venerating dead Indians, as we call them, people who no longer represent a threat. But you're talking about in Argentine Black society that is newly assertive. How's white Argentina adjusting to this revision of its history?
1: What I've found in general is that there is some interest, specifically interest in the Black history, which I think is safe. So it's, oh, I did not know this. Oftentimes what has been taught in the schools is you see these courageous acts of black men during the wars, but oh, unfortunately, they all died off kind of thing. And so they they disappear very quickly after slavery. And so now when they're starting to learn that they're very active, that we in, in, in Buenos Aires had a black press, right? That is very much something you can consult at the National Library still today, that there was, you know, these prominent Black leaders, like I mentioned, Maria Remedios-DeVarce, there is overall interest in the history. But history, like I want to stress, can be very safe. When it comes to thinking about today and the demands that the Black community is putting forth to the government, that's when things get still a little bit prickly. (laughs) And so you'll hear some argue, well, Almost like here, very xenophobic. They aren't Argentines. They're not deserving of any of our services, especially when it comes to those that are recently immigrated to the country. Or you hill people say, well, you know, history shows, yes, they were there. But, you know, we are a melting pot, right? So we don't have discrimination. We don't have those problems like the United States. These killings, for example, of, of black men right now on the streets, in their minds, it's never happened to us. If you ask some black Argentines that have been <laughs> harassed by the cops, however, they are very much connected with our movement right now. And they see it. And actually, it's, it's allowing for them to speak more about their own abuses by some of the police in Argentina. So yeah, it's interesting again how safe history can be and oh, I didn't know that, that's interesting, but as far as right here and now, they aren't gonna get anything that I can't get. And so it's, it's, that's what I'm starting to hear more and more as black activism becomes more visible.
3: Well, all of that sounds quite familiar. And I guess that's logical because the US and Argentina are both white settler states.
1: Yes, in in many ways, you can see that the parallels of the United States and Argentina, especially in Argentina, where you have a community that first and foremost continues to just fight for their own visibility. And in saying that they were not just arrived, but have always been there. And I think that is important to stress, too, if we start to think of at least somewhat of the differences between the plight of black peoples in Argentina versus the United States. They, in many ways, are a few steps behind because they first have to at least have the government and the people acknowledge that they just recently didn't come here. So many of them, as they would argue, have to, people will see them and say, oh, you must be from brazil you must be from a caribbean country you must be from an Andean country and they have to sit there and say no actually i and my parents or my grandparents or in some cases that are slave descendants have always been here we are argentine because they would say something like oh you're you speak really good spanish <laughs> and so they, they're just shocked at that and so, yes, you see how white supremacy very much so has constructed Argentina to the point where they do not want to see, in many ways, the diversity of their country. And so, yeah, yeah I definitely agree. It's, it's a process that these Black activists have taken hold of and will continue to fight for as they continue to grow. However, I do see that the... Pushback will also become stronger. And that is something I worry about for them. But at the same time, I remain very supportive of their efforts. To a little bit more about Black women, one of the things that I think I want to stress about their involvement in the construction of race is the love that they had for their children and what they're willing to do for their children. And I think it still speaks very much when we think about these murders and these killings that have happened recently. And I think of the mothers that are suffering so much. So just to really drive home this connection that black motherhood has, that it transcends borders, it transcends time, and it continuously shows that we, as I am a mother as well, will do what it takes to help our children, to support our children, to make sure they have a better life. And when you see that it is, doesn't come to fruition, as in the cases of these these recent horrific murders, it really just, it breaks my heart. And I, I just wanted to put that out there, what, what she was willing to do in Argentina specifically, sacrificing at times I think one of the things I I constantly go back to is some of these black mothers were pregnant and they still found a way to earn the money to pay for their child's freedom knowing she would still be enslaved and so that to me the love of a black mother is just it's an amazing thing
3: you've been listening to the black agenda report on the progressive radio network Information for Liberation.